you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. We're carrying on with our series on the signs. Uh, we've entitled Signs and Wonders, um, and we're looking this evening at the second sign uh, in John's Gospel. Uh, and so our focus this evening will be verses 46 to 54 of John, chapter 4. Uh, this is God's Word. Let's hear it. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, that is 1 p.m., the fever left him. The father knew that he, that was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Only so far in the reading of God's word may reform our lives to its truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've just read your word, we do pray with the psalmist that you would make known your ways to us that you teach us your paths and lead us in your truth, because ultimately, God, you are the God of our salvation. And without you, we can do nothing. We are weak, frail, sinful beings in need of your grace. And so we pray even tonight that you would pour out your grace lavishly upon us, that you'd save and sanctify your people and draw us to yourself to worship you in a way that pleases you and honors you, with a faith that honors you. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Jay was a hardened unbeliever, one of his, one of his pet um, things that he would love to do, or, or one of his favorite hobbies was to mock and insult Christians. He would often go to them and and say to them, for example, uh, and shout out and pray to God and say, God, if you existed, why don't you make this chair levitate and I'll believe upon you. And of course, his point was to mock Christians and make them feel an inch big. Ellison uh, was a little bit different. Ellison was a nominal believer who would say that she's a Christian when you met her particularly uh, in a time and season of trial and difficulty when her husband wanted to leave her. Then she realized that she needed Christ, and so she came to church, uh, asked for counsel, and for a few weeks after pastoral counsel, after ladies coming alongside of her, encouraging her, she was a faithful believer. Up until her husband got restored to her by God's grace, but slowly over time, as she started to disappear to the point where she was no longer at church. When all, the where all the women tried to get in touch with her, she would be too busy. She was a normal, normal believer. 
Dan, on other words, a zealous believer. He was on fire for the Lord. He would phone people and encourage them if you're going through difficulties. He would have coffee with you. And he would zealously invite you to his church. Why? Because his church really knew the Spirit. He would go there and pray in tongues, and he'd be excited about this experience. He would tell people about gold dust in worship. You might have heard of that trend a few years ago. He was zealous for the Lord, so much so that these worship services were an exciting uh, spiritual experience for him. But over time, Dan's experiences became to go a different direction. He realized, wait a minute, all these spiritual experiences were more subjective than objective, and over time he went nominal as well, to the point where he today is not a believer. Now, what do all of these stories, all of these people have in common? Well, not just because they're all people I've seen and experienced and witnessed in pastoral counseling, but all of them have this in common. In one way or another, they've all bought into the lie that seeing is believing. They've all bought into that lie that seeing is believing. That is to say, they will believe in Jesus and follow after him as long as they see Jesus do what they want, fulfill their felt needs, and provide a desired experience. See, they will believe in Jesus only until their ends are met, which implies, doesn't it, that Jesus is only a means to an end. This is true of many, not just those individuals. Many today, Jesus is just a means to have their needs met, their problems solved, and their desires fulfilled. And don't get me wrong, Jesus does that and, and more Jesus is able to solve your problems. He's able to heal your brokenness, meet your needs, satisfy your desires. But not because he's some magical miracle worker, but no, because he's the Messiah. He's able to do all of that more, not just because he's a problem solver, but a personal savior who cares for his people. Not because he's some uh, means to an end, but he's the very end of our lives, the goal for which we should strive and the point we need to get is you cannot approach this Jesus on your own terms. You cannot approach him with this idea that you will believe him and follow him if he does what you want and gives you what you need. And see, in our passage, Jesus confronts this very mentality that thinks it needs to see before it believes. In the section right before our passage, uh, the first part of chapter 4, Jesus was in Samaria, and, and there he performed no miracles, no signs, no wonders, yet guess what? Many came to a saving faith. In, in verse 42, we're even told that the Samaritans confess indeed that this is the Savior of the world. And the question is, when Jesus comes back into Galilee, and when he comes back to his own people, the Jews, will he find this kind of faith among his people? And the sad reality is no. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.22, the Jews of the day demanded signs. Even in chapter 2, we are told that many Jews believed in Jesus because they saw his signs. And we're told that Jesus didn't even trust them because he knew what was in them. They used to say he knew that their faith was empty and insecure, insincere. 
And see, it's this same mentality, this, this seeing to believe mentality that Jesus confronts in this passage. Here we see a man approach Jesus, and we're told he's an official. He's probably an official in Herod's court, which means he's wealthy and influential. But he's in serious need. His son is sick. And so he approaches Jesus in desperation to heal his son. And what is, is quite shocking is that Jesus responds harshly to him in verse 48. He said, Jesus says, that unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, now, why respond quite harshly like this? What, what is Jesus getting at? Well, two things, I believe. There's two reasons. Firstly, Jesus wants to come and confront this man's weak faith. This man comes to Jesus, which is good, but he comes to Jesus as a miracle worker, not a Messiah. He, he comes to, to seek Jesus as a means to an end with very little knowledge of who Jesus actually is. But Jesus also comes in this particular passage and this question to cultivate stronger faith. Jesus, in a sense, here is doing open-heart surgery on this man. He is, in this passage, healing this man's faith. So much so that at the end of this narrative, we'll see that the miracle here isn't just the healing of this man's son. No, it's the healing of this man's faith. I love this quote by Trench. He makes this observation. He points out that Jesus heals both the body of the absent child and the heart of the present father. One is cured of sickness, the other of its unbelief. Now, how does this happen? What, how does that happen? Well, I want you to see this, more, this evening how this man's faith grows. You'll notice uh, the word believe is mentioned three times. Uh, verse 48, verse 50, and verse 53. And as many have pointed out, we see here how this man's faith grows. It progresses. It grows from being faith that sees Jesus as a means to being faith that, that sees Jesus as the, as the end. And, and so the first thing I want you to see this evening as you consider this passage is uh, this man's emergency faith, an emergency faith. In, in verse 46 to 47, we're introduced to this official and we see that he's in an emergency he is in a trying and desperate situation. Not only is his son ill, but his son, we're told, is at the point of death. And so in his desperation, he turns to Jesus. He must have heard that Jesus performed many miracles in Jerusalem. And when he hears that Jesus now is, is in Galilee, he, he goes urgently to seek him out. And, and realize the man here is to be commended. Why? Because in his desperation, in his affliction, he at least turns to Jesus. And so we see here the sparks of faith. We see some evidence of faith here, or what we would call an emergency faith. Now, Edwards, Edward Pierce is a well-known, or not well-known Puritan, and he defines faith as, as three acts, and the first of which is this act of choice, this act of the will to, to turn to Christ. And that's what we see here. This man, in his need, turns to Christ. I wonder, beloved, I wonder, dear friend, in your affliction, in your trials, in your hardships, in your despair, where do you turn to? Who do you turn to for help? Realize, dear friend, that God purposely allows affliction. 
He purposely allows affliction so that in our need, we would come to the end of ourselves and turn to God as our greatest hope and our greatest help in our difficulty. It's D.L. Moody who once said that afflictions are actually better for us than prosperity. Because in prosperity, we tend to forget God, yet in afflictions, we, we feel our very need for Him. Consider the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Now, why would God afflict as a mark of his faithfulness? Well, because God in his faithfulness to his people puts them in affliction so that they would see where their true strength lies, where their true hope is to be found. That's why in the very next verses, verse 76 and 77, the psalmist says, Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. You see, the psalmist in his affliction has come to see that God is his comfort. God is his life. God is his greatest help. Have you come to see that this morning, this evening? Perhaps you're here tonight and you're in a season of trial and affliction and desperation. You don't know where to turn. Have you not thought perhaps that God is calling you to himself? God is wanting you to see your very real need and to turn to him for help. See, this man in our passage, when he sees his need, he turns to Jesus. The question is, will you? Will you turn to him for help in your trial and your difficulty? Now, there's a big difference between the psalmist who in affliction turns to God and this man in our passage who in his affliction turns to Jesus. And what's the difference? Well, the psalmist turns to God with faith merely set, with faith set on God's word. Whereas the official in our passage comes to Jesus with what we could call a, a wonder faith. They used to say, it's a faith that seeks signs and wonders. It's faith that seeks Jesus as this miracle worker. Now, as Calvin pointed out many, many years ago, the very fact that this man comes to Jesus and he, he pleads with him to physically come down and heal him and to rush before his son dies reveals to us that this man's faith is lacking. His faith is lacking, one, because he thinks that Jesus must be physically present, present to heal his son. And two, he, he, he sees that he doesn't understand that, that Jesus is able to help even if his son dies. See, this man has a very incomplete view of Jesus and therefore a very incomplete faith. A faith that's still fixed on wonders, that still looks to a wonder worker. That's why Jesus rebukes him in verse 48. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus here. There's a place for a wonder faith. There's, there's a place to have faith in wonders and based upon what God has done. For example, in John chapter 10, verse 38, as Jesus debates with the skeptical Pharisees, he tells them, even if you do not believe me, believe my works. Look at my signs. Look at what I've done. Even at the end of the gospel, as John gives his purpose, as we looked at last week, he, he says these signs are recorded that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. See, there's a place for a wonder faith. 
But Jesus' point with this man is that your faith cannot stay there. It can't be a faith that is just an emergency faith that looks for a quick fix in a wonder. I think of Thomas, doubting Thomas, right at the end of the gospel. He says he won't believe that Christ was raised unless he sees him, sees his hands and his feet. And Jesus doesn't ignore him. He goes to him and shows him his hands and his feet. And he asks him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet who have believed. See, there's a place for wonder faith, but it has to grow. It has to mature. It has to be strengthened. And that's what Jesus is doing in this passage. He's going to strengthen this man's weak wonder faith. That leads me to the second thing I want you to see, uh, how this man's faith progresses. I want to see an exercised faith an exercise faith. Despite this man being rebuked in verse 48, we see that he doesn't give up. In fact, he persists even more. He, he presses upon Jesus more. He fervently asks for help. He says, Sir or Lord, come down before my child dies. Now, now this man's response should make you think of another uh, story in the Scriptures. Jesus tells the parable in Luke 18 of the persistent widow which is a parable about prayer and, and not giving up. There, there we see how this widow persistently nags a judge until he gives her justice. And what's interesting, after telling that parable, Jesus ends the parable by asking, will he find such faith on earth? See, for Jesus, a persistent faith, a, a, a persistent pleading upon the Lord for help is a mark of faith or a mark of what we might call an exercise faith. It is a faith that is pleasing because it doesn't give up. It, it exerts itself. It works. It persists. And it's this kind of faith that Jesus finds pleasing in his people. And we know that because Jesus gives the man what he wants. He, he gives him the assurance that his son indeed will live. Look how he responds. He only gives him five words. Go, your son will live. Now, Jesus doesn't do exactly what he asks for. He doesn't go down with the official. He doesn't perform any mighty miracle then and there. No, Jesus just gives him his word. Why? Because Jesus is still working on this man. Jesus is in the process of healing his faith. And you know what? It's, it's working. Because look at the response of the man. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now remember, this man rushed to Jesus. He, he was urgently seeking Jesus with great desperation. He was pleading with Jesus to come down and heal his son. Yet now, he just accepts the word. He just simply rests in the word of Jesus. No miracle was performed. No sign. No wonder. This man simply believes. And from the context, it seemed that he actually leisurely makes his way back home. But what's happened? Well, this man here has finally come to exercise true faith, what Edward Pierce would call an act of confidence. That's what you see here. This man not only persists in choosing Jesus, but now he places his confidence and his trust in Christ, particularly his word, particularly his promise. And realize, here we see the mark of true great faith. It's what we might call a, a, a word faith. It's not a faith that merely seeks wonders, but a faith that simply trusts the word of God. 
And realize it's this kind of faith that Jesus marvels at. It's this kind of faith that he, he's amazed by. We know that because in, in Matthew 8 and Luke 7, we find an incident that's very similar to our passage, uh, the incident of Jesus and the centurion. And, and there the centurion comes to Jesus because he has a servant who is sick, and he wants Jesus to heal him. But instead of asking him to come down to his house, he says that his word is just enough. He, he, he confesses a faith that, that Jesus just has to say a word and the servant will be healed. So it's that kind of faith, a, a word faith that causes Christ to amaze. He says it's marvelous. He's not seen faith like that at all in those texts. It's, it's that kind of faith that, that truly Christ is pleased by. And it's that kind of faith that this man here finally displays. I wonder, to, to draw the focus back to us, I wonder, does Jesus marvel at our faith? Does he marvel at us because we have a word faith? A faith that simply trusts in his word and in his promises. May I suggest to you, and now I've been convicted by this, this man in many ways puts our faith to shame. Jesus gives this man five words, and he believes, and you almost immediately see his peace of mind. T tell me, how many words has Jesus given you? He's given us quite a few, right? He's given us an entire Bible. We have so many of his words. See, God has given us his word, which is filled with his promises, his precepts, his perfections, and all of it is meant to inflame our faith, to exercise it. Yet how often are we not marked by anxious toil and strife? But because, because, because we often are marked by unbelief. We're all too often marked by this, by this lack of trust in God's Word. And so we become anxious, we strive, we, we have no peace. See, just as this man comes to exercise true faith in God's Word, his example is meant to teach us to exercise faith in God's Word, to take him at his Word and to find peace in his Word. But, but let's move on. Let's look at how this progresses because there's more to learn about this man's growing faith. In the third place, I want you to see what I've called an emerging or embracing faith. And embracing faith. In verse 51 to 53, we see that it's the next day, and, and the official, as he travels back home, he encounters his servants, and they inform him that his son is alive and well. And after asking them about his son, uh, the official comes to realize that when Jesus said, go, your son is well, your, your son will live, at that very hour, his son was cured and made well. And it's at this point that we find the third occurrence of the word believe. And we're told that he himself believed again. Now, what are we to make of that? We, we're told he believed in verse 50 and then again in verse 53. What are we to make of this believing again? Well, by taking the entire passage together, I'm inclined to think that this man has not only moved from having a wonder faith to having a work, word faith, but he's come to have what we might call a worshiping faith. They just say he's come to see that Jesus isn't just this miracle worker, one who performs wonders. No, he's one who is worthy of worship. If I can put it this way, he's moved from, from the what to the who. This man has come to not only see what Christ is able to do, he's able to see now who Jesus is. 
It is a faith that sees Jesus and embraces him, clings to him, longs to him, longs for him. John Calvin defined this kind of faith as faith is not just a distant view, but a warm embrace of Christ. I would argue that's what we see here in this man by his faith. He embraces Christ not just as a means to an end. His son's already been healed. But he embraces Christ for who he is as the end. Which tells us that this kind of faith isn't just a once-off act, but a lifelong embracing, a lifelong following after Christ. Jesus made the same point in Matthew 10, 38, where he said, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is the kind of faith that Christ longs for and is pleased by is when his people embrace him and follow him. That makes that faith worthy of him. That's why Edward Pierce says the third act of faith is the act of resignation or what we could call the act of consecration. It's this recognizing that I give my all to him. It's this kind of faith that sings, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments, my days, let them flow in endless praise. Why praise? Because in and of myself, I am nothing, weak and frail. Yet in Christ, I have strength. In Christ, I have wisdom. In Christ, I have hope. It is a kind of faith that sees its only need to be found in Christ, in his person and his work. This, I believe, is the kind of faith that this man has here, faith that embraces Christ and consecrates itself to him fully in worship. But how do we know, however, that this is the kind of faith that this man had? Well, we're given a clue at the end of verse 53, which leads me to my fourth point, And that is we see an evangelizing faith. Not only does this official believe, but we're told that his house believes, his household believes. Verse 53, he himself believed and all his household. Now the fact that they all believed implies, doesn't it, that they must have been told what had happened. They must have been told how Jesus rebuked him for his seeking wonders. How Jesus refused to come with him and instead gave him his word. And how, now that his word has been fulfilled, he, 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 he believes and they believe. And as he told them, they must have seen something different about this man. This man that was anxious and fearful before now has this confidence. They must have seen something different, something so different that it must have caused them to want to believe like he believed. So I think there's a lesson to be learned in this man's example. When we sincerely exercise faith in Christ and we embrace him wholeheartedly by faith, the result will be an evangelizing faith that is also a witnessing faith. We have so many examples of this in Scripture. I think of Philip in John chapter 1, verse 46, after he follows Jesus and comes to know Jesus, he goes to Nathaniel and says, Come and see, come and see the Messiah. Think of the Samaritan who in John 4, 29 seemingly comes to faith and she goes to her town and also says, come and see the man who has told me all that I've ever done. Can he be the Messiah? 
think even of Peter in Acts 4.20, after being told not to speak of Jesus, he says, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Or think even of the Apostle John in 1 John 4.14, of the speaking of the love of God, he said, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. See, all of these are examples of what we would call an evangelizing faith, a witnessing faith, a faith that recognizes Christ and cannot keep silent. Is that us? Do we evidence that we have fully embraced Christ because it is leading to an evangelizing faith that bears witness? I would argue that this is what we see in this official Someone who has come to see Christ fully and the results are spectacular because now we see a man who is bearing witness for Christ. Here's a man who at the start had a weak, sickly faith, a wonder faith motivated by emergency. Yet now at the end of this narrative, we see a mature, healthy faith, faith exercised by the word that embraces Jesus in worship and is evangelical as it bears witness of Christ. Now, how, how can this happen? How has this man come to believe, come believe in this way? Well, the answer is found in the one who is in control of this narrative. The answer is found in the worker of the second sign. The answer is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, who Hebrews tells us is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So, you see, this second sign is twofold in nature. Here we see the miraculous healing of this man's son, and this man's faith. And don't think that his faith being healed is, isn't miraculous. No, we are told in Scripture that all of us are dead in our nature, dead in sin. No one seeks after God. See, only the miraculous work of God can enable a dead sinner to take hold of Christ with the arms of faith. Now, make no mistake about it. Here we see a twofold sign, the healing of this man's son and this man's faith. And because it's a twofold sign, it points us to two aspects of Jesus' glory. And remember, that's the purpose of these signs. They, they manifest Jesus' glory. And so, beloved, firstly, behold the glory of one who is powerful. What we see here is that distance is no hindrance to Jesus. Jesus is able to heal a child who's 24 kilometers away, and he's able to do it with a simple word. And this ought to be a great comfort to us, a great motive to our faith. It ought to lead us to greater trust. Because although Jesus might not be with us physically, although he is exalted in the heavens, he's still interceding for us. He's still speaking on our behalf. And he's able to powerfully work in our lives. Perhaps you're here tonight and you have needs, you have problems, you have desires. Dear friend, like this man, go to Jesus. Why? Because he's able, he's powerfully able to, to meet the needs in your relationships, in your marriage, in your family. He's able to, to solve the problems of addiction and brokenness and sin. And he's able to satisfy the desires of your soul for rest and peace and love. Go to Jesus, believe upon Him, but don't go to Him because He's a miracle worker. Don't go to Him because He can give you what you want. 
Now go to him for who he is, a sovereign Lord who upholds this universe with the power of his word and who with a word can bring healing to your life, comfort and hope and help. But secondly, behold the glory of one who is merciful. Whereas Jesus exerts his power to heal the son, Jesus exemplifies his mercy in dealing with this father. The official comes to Jesus with sickly, selfish, sign-seeking faith. Yet Jesus doesn't discard him. He doesn't rebuke him and refuse him. No, Jesus sees this man in his need. Jesus sees his faith. Yes, it's weak. But Jesus is moved with mercy and compassion. Although Jesus corrects him, in mercy he cares still. And again, this too is a motive for our faith and a comfort in our lives. Because that's how Jesus meets every single one of us. Doesn't matter who you are, each one of us has weak faith at times. Each one of us comes with lives tainted with sin. Yet if we come to him, even with our weak, feeble faith, he will not refuse us. But in mercy, he offers to help us. Perhaps you're a Christian, perhaps you're a believer, but for whatever reason, for sin or worldliness, your walk with the Lord has been hindered. It's been hindered by unbelief. And if it has, know this, Jesus is still merciful. He's still compassionate. He's still able to supply you with mercy and grace in your time of need. But you need to go to him. He doesn't sincerely cry out to him, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Why? Not because he's just a problem solver, but because he's a personal savior. A personal savior who dies and lives for his people. I realize this passage prepares us for the death and resurrection of Christ. Also, because in this passage we have two sons. One son, the official son, is at the point of death. And because Jesus' mercy and power, that son lives. The other son in our passage is Jesus, the, the Son of God, who because of his mercy toward us, goes to the cross and goes beyond the point of death because he dies for us. Why? To pay our sin, to purchase our forgiveness, to save us. But Jesus is not just the son who dies, he's the son who lives because by his power he takes his life up again. He is raised to new life to justify us, to give us new life, to, to restore us to our father. And realize what Jesus does for this man and his son, Jesus does for us and our father. Just as he heals the son and restores him to the father, so to Jesus heals us of our sin and restores us to our heavenly father. And he does it not just with the word, he does it with his work, his work at the cross and the empty tomb. And so, beloved, behold the glory and grace of the Son of God, the Son who dies and lives so that you would die to sin and live everlastingly for him, that you'd be saved and set apart for him. But to behold his glory, to take hold of his grace, you need to believe you need to see His glory and His grace, and you need to do it by faith in Him. 
Our world works with the pragmatic philosophy, seeing is believing, while our second sign flips that on the head. If you want to be saved and healed of your sin, if you want to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, if you want to know the grace of Christ in your life, you need to believe, you need to walk by faith and not by sight. See, for Christianity, for the Bible, for our salvation, for holy living, believing is seen. May the Lord help us in our weak faith to believe so that we would see him in all his glory and his grace as our personal Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if on a quiet sea toward heaven we calmly sail, with grateful hearts, O God, to thee we'll own the favoring gale. But should the surges rise and rest delay to come, blessed be the sorrow, kind be the storm which drives us nearer home. Soon shall our doubts and fears all yield at thy control. Thy tender mercy shall illumine the midnight of the soul. Teach us in every state to make thy will our own, and when the joys of sense depart, to live by faith alone.